Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that reminds you it's within. As always, hello to our regular listeners right across the world who tune in to us every week so that we can be your armour, your partner, your guide in a world that so often feels negative, divisive or confused. And an especially warm welcome to anyone that hasn't listened to High Performance before. That we really want these conversations to remind you of your power, your potential and what you're all capable of. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to unlock the mind of another fascinating guest so they can be your teacher today. This is what's coming up on today's episode. It's the perfect press story that two guys from the same band are coming out. One's making great music versus this guy who is now a watered-down version of who he was before he went to America. It just played itself out as badly as it could. The worst three minutes, I think, of my whole life. There's no coming back from this. There's, there's no second performance to launch yourself in America. This was it. And I also knew I'm not meant to be this guy. I'm better than this. I need to sort this out. But the first run I did, I was so out of shape, but it felt brilliant to run. It felt brilliant to move, to feel air going across my face. I just remember giggling to myself walking back, thinking I've got a lot to do here, but you know what? It's all right because I'm on the, I'm on the road now. Where I'm at now in my life, it's, it's such a great place that... I have to look back and go, God, I needed to fail. So today we welcome Gary Barlow to High Performance. Man, this was a cool conversation. I'm sure that, like many people, you have an opinion of Gary Barlow. Like, who doesn't? He's the guy from Take That. He's the guy who's been on our TV screens for years. He's the guy who's been in the papers for decades. But please remember, this podcast is not about opinion. Opinion is worthless. It's empathy that really matters. And we want you to understand more about Gary Barlow than you ever have before. Um, Of course, we talk about the great times and there's been many of those, but we also talk really emotionally, really openly and really deeply about the challenges, the challenges of finding fame and maybe not feeling totally comfortable in that setting. So behaving in a way that perhaps you now wouldn't or certainly back then you shouldn't. You know, we talk about what it was like when Gary got the great moment to go to the States to launch his solo career and it didn't go as planned. What really happened when he became a recluse, he closed the doors of his mansion, he comfort eight, he didn't write songs, he looked at the piano and saw it as an enemy rather than the thing that had given him so much joy over the years, and how, from the depths of despair, you can bounce back. This is a conversation about the fact that we're not fixed. It's a conversation about the fact that you don't know what's around the corner, that life is a constant roller coaster, that you need to learn to deal with the ups as well as cope with the downs. And that's something that Gary has done throughout his life and through the struggles and through the hard times. He's learned such valuable lessons that I know you are going to really get a lot from. So let's do it then, as we welcome one of the most legendary British singer-songwriters to high performance. Ladies and gentlemen, our chat with Gary Barlow. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Gary, welcome to High Performance. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. So what is your definition of high performance? Just hearing those two words, I'd probably say touring. I think that's possibly where all the stars align, you know, music that you've been creating for maybe one or two years. You've been out, told the world about, and then you get the the, the job of going out and performing it. And usually a, a, a tour is something I'd train towards, um, a night after night event. So you've got to keep yourself fit and healthy on the top of your game. I think that's when artists are at their absolute peak performance is when they're on tour. Nice. Well, the two of us came to see you on tour, but it wasn't one of the huge arenas with the <laughs> pop songs and the tens of thousands of people. It was one of your really intimate and enjoyable theatre shows where you mm. basically shared the stories of your life mm. and the things you've learned along the way. The thing that got the the both of us really was that emotional connection to your upbringing and your childhood, which still sort of rings true in you today. I loved the fact that you had the the original bit of equipment that your dad had bought for you to learn to play piano on. And I just wonder what your dad's sacrifice, was it, it was a keyboard or was it an organ? It was an organ. It was. It was an organ. They weren't pushy parents. They're still not. But they saw something and thought, "Let's enhance this." And so he took me off to this music shop, and we asked the guy in there, "What's where? Where do we go from here?" And the guy said, "Oh, this is the thing over here," and took us over to this. They're called Electrone, these organs, Yamaha organs, sort of early 80s models. So of course, I went off into the bedroom for six months and just literally didn't get off the stool, learnt this thing back to front um, and opened the door one day and I could play it. I could make it work. And nice. uh, and, and and I think the the, the day that my dad sort of realised what he'd done for me was when he brought the neighbours round and they sat on my bed and I played for them and the wife was crying and the husband was on his feet clapping his hands because they enjoyed it so much. And my dad turned to me and said, if you can do that to people, you'll have a job for the rest of your life. 
Wow. And I was 11 at that point. So it was really like, okay, where do we go from here? So it, was, it was massive, massive for me as a child to have my dad sell all his time off at work to buy me this. It was enormous. Amazing. And what, and what was it that that organ gave you that meant that you did go and lock yourself away for six months? Because that level of commitment for an 11-year-old child is pretty unusual but significant. I think what it unlocked in me was this passion for music and I'd been given this small bit of raw talent that meant I could by ear learn a tune and, and knock it out and play it quite well and I wanted more. It was like an obsession and that went on for years and years and years um, until I could read music, I was playing in bigger clubs, I was playing every night of the week and then the door opened then to starting to sing around sort of fifth, age of 15. We, we had a, a, a bit of a blank night in a club I was playing in. One of the singers didn't turn up. And it was one of those places where they just ex expect an act to be on every night. Um, so the bingo had finished. The act hadn't turned up. And it was like, what do we do now? And I'd been singing a little bit at home. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to give them a song here. And I broke into a whiter shade of pale. And like the place went crazy. And so that's when the singing really started. And I guess the songwriting began, began about that time of my life as well, about 15. There needs to be something else there as well, though, because you can have all of that talent and that desire and that drive. Resilience is vital. Where did the resilience, the ability to get up and perform or to have a bad day or to have bad news or to have that? I mean, you're a young guy getting that kind of reaction. How do you go again at that age? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because definitely between 16 and 18, I knew that the clubs wasn't enough. And so I was trying to get a publishing deal or a record deal. So I was coming, to, I had my student rail card and I was getting on the train at Runcorn and got into Euston and I was going and touring around the labels. And so what my day would often consist of is it's Monday morning, I get on the train, it's a four-hour train journey at this point. You get to London, you go and sit at EMI Records in reception waiting to see somebody. And some days you'd sit there for six hours and no one would come. You'd get back on the train and go back home. And so that went on for like one or two years. And I thought, right, and what I need is I need a partner. I need someone who's between me and the label, a manager to go and do that job for me while I'm writing and singing. And that's when I did all the applications to the local management companies and, and landed at Nigel Martin Smith's office in, in Manchester. And he decided that this band he was going to make says, right, you're the middle you're the guy in the middle. You, I want you to write the songs. I want you to, you know, be part of all the production. You are the music guy in this band. And he said that that's what, what his focus was of building this band then around me. Um, so it was a big, big moment for me, that was. Um, and at the second meeting, he then showed me pictures of these other guys. Um, and only one of them, of these guys, didn't end up in the group. Can I take you back to the clubs, though, before we yep. get into the story of the origins of Take mm -hmm. That? Would you tell us a little bit about what you learned about being able to read a room, to watch an audience and be able to connect with them? Yeah, it was... It was um, people talk about this 10,000 hours thing a lot, and it really relates to music. 
and it was one of the things that used to frustrate me so much when I was on X Factor was that people think they can just walk on a stage and it just the magic just happens. And you might have a great voice, but it's not enough. You might have a great song, but it's not enough. It's this being on a stage and slowly learning what works and what doesn't, what people relate to, how to work an audience over an hour, how to do these things. And what was fascinating for me was, is that when I, I, I was playing in these clubs, I'd often sat, be sat behind the artist. The person I wanted to be, I was sat behind them. I was playing instrumentation for them. I'd have the best view because I'd be watching what they were seeing. So I could see them so cleverly work in the room, uh, even to the point where now and again um, comedians would point at something and I knew they were looking at their watch to see how long they'd done. <laughs> and it was, th it was just this, this wave of bringing an audience through a performance which really fascinated me and experience of doing that. It's just you, you can't tell somebody how to do it. They have to learn how to do it personally by going through the, the nights where you don't even get an applause or... You've got to go through that to learn how to make an audience do what you want them to do. So you've been given this natural ability to hear music, repeat it, write songs, create a bit of magic on the piano. Your dad's then backed you and given you that confidence because he's gone and spent a lot of hard-earned money on the organ. And then you've gone into Nigel's office and suddenly you're in this band, right? Give us an idea at that age of your, your confidence levels because it feels like you've almost already had a career and maybe some of the other guys seemed a bit fresher or a bit more inexperienced than you. Yeah, it was very much that actually. Um, it, especially vocally, no one had really had much experience at all. And that's what, what Nigel, what, you know, wanted me to do is like get everyone up to get them in the studio, get them all singing, get them harmonizing and all that stuff. And we spent probably 18 months doing that before we even started looking for labels that was our sort of journey to getting a record deal was just trying to be out there performing. This wasn't a, a club audience now. This was a this was a whole new thing this was. This was, you know, young kids. I, I'd never even seen them in these clubs. You know, it was a whole different crowd this was. So the set list changed completely. And also, you know, we had like a show. A couple of the lads were Madonna fans, a couple of Prince fans. These, these are artists who put on shows. So that's when all the dance routines start. You know, it wasn't enough to just sing in front of a mic. We wanted to put this big event on for an audience, never dreaming that we'd been able to actually do all this. But that was our first sort of two years before we even got a record deal. We went into RCA Records as this really dated looking boy band with I would, you know, the sort of music I was making was sort of 1988, not 1991. And um, the A&R departments were going, this is, this is really? never going to work. However, the promotion departments were in the A&R offices saying, we've got all the magazines saying there's no one they can put on the cover. They've got all these dance acts. They don't even know what they look like. We need someone to put on there. So they were begging the A&R departments to sign us, which is how we got signed, not on the music or any of that. They just like wanted a band that they could put on their magazines. But can I ask you about that? I mean, that two-year period sounds fascinating when you've been thrown together with mm -hmm. four other lads. You've been put as the leader because you're the more experienced one. And just like... 
that's a lot of responsibility on a 18 year old lad's shoulders to be able to give feedback or direction or instruction in an emotionally intelligent way without causing friction or difficulties so i mean what was your experience of being able to do that you'd have four different answers to this in in you sure. know if you asked everybody else but it was a funny one because there was definitely times where it felt like this is going nowhere you know we had three misses before we had a hit we had three big releases didn't even go in the top 40 how did you keep faith in your ability as a songwriter because that must have been really hard especially trying to convince the others in the band as well that your talent is worth listening to it's like anything when things aren't going your way everybody's second guessing everything and it was an in, an interesting one because when you think of what a manager does managers are there to keep your confidence at the absolute highest there was so many times i thought i don't ever believe this but he was so believable the way he was saying talking about success he was talking about it like it all, it had already happened that we just went along as a team. And and he was right. And I've read that you said that you kept a file of facts at this stage where you were writing down your goals of, I want to get on top of the pops, I want to have a number one record and things like that. When did you start doing that kind of goal setting to give yourself that aspiration and the, the ambition? Probably many years before. Right. I think back a lot to... Um, who I was back in those teenage years, the confidence was through the roof. And I think it's because I was good at what I did and I was confident in it. In a whole week of gigs, six out of ten, I could have a standing ovation every night. I really believed it was going to be successful. And when it was, it wasn't that much of a surprise to me. And of course, that that's the time when, when we were starting to have this big success around 92. The world of doing what we do just took over everybody there wasn't time to be thinking about what's your next goal or it was literally just flights interviews gigs when you were knackered you, you're losing your voice could you been talking all day it was there were a really hard few years did you realize it in this period now like it's the great stuff because it's the big hits and the big events and stuff but all the personal growth disappears. All of the deep learning that you're able to do disappears. You kind of, you're so in it, you're so obsessed with it, I guess, that it doesn't yeah. allow for any of that stuff. Yeah, it takes over. There's things I think back on a lot of, of where um, we'd be finishing a tour and we'd been out for, I don't know, six months or something and we get home and everyone's booking holidays and I get a call saying, oh, the label, we need the album next week. And I haven't written anything because we've been on the road. So I watch everyone go off to Magaluf and all these places and I've got to write an album now in, in a week. And I look back and I think, God, look at that album I wrote that yeah. week big, with like three big songs on it. Like, Did you mind this? Were you thinking, give us a break? Or were you no, I so single-minded? In... I think I was. I was yeah. so, it was so automatic that it just came out. Even like when I think about how long we talk about our direction and where we want to go next, and that was decided in an evening. You know, it was. It's just really amazing the the massive decisions that you make in those circumstances of like mayhem and travel and gigs and I mean, just 
Yeah, the things that we put so much thought into now were literally a five-second decision back then. And uh, nobody's flawless, right? You were delivering an amazing set of songs and albums and music and doing so much for the band. But there's all, everything has a price, right? So, so what were you like as a person at this point? I remember watching something where you and the guys all got together in a pub and you talked about coming back. And you remember, mm-hmm. I can't remember which bandmate of yours, but they said, oh, I'm not sure. Like, I remember what you were like at that time. Yeah. I'm interested on the impact that that had on you and what you think about when when you sort of take those words on board. Oh, I think I was unbearable. I really do. I really do. I think about it a lot, actually, because, you know, I look at my band members over the years, I think, God, they've put up with a lot. I was right all the time, and I was the leader all the time. That original role I'd been given, I didn't give any of it up as the years went on. The band needed to end because we did all end with a handshake at the end and everyone went their separate ways. And, you know, Robert got out a little early. It was all getting too much for him. It's easy looking back on this now and and having a and having because, of course, where I'm at now in my life, it's, it's such a great place that I have to look back and go, God, I needed to fail because it couldn't carry on in that way. It was just too unbearable to be around. So when Robbie leaves your band, yep. you're probably thinking, no problem. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah, it's a funny one because the whole Rob thing, I mean, it's such a such a, a scary thing to always talk about because I always feel like... Are you comfy well, now talking about it? I'm, I'm, I'm never comfy talking about anyone. I, I yeah. always think they should have their own say, but, but um, he's not here, so I, I can probably talk about it semi-freely. Rob... My friends were Jason and Howard. It was the three of us. We we were the older ones we got on. Mark and Rob were always a bit removed for us. They were the cool younger ones and they were the naughty ones and they were always off doing something else. So it wasn't like Jay or Howard leaving the band. It was it was it was Rob. You know, it was it'd be fine. It'd be fine. Let it you know, and I think we all look back at that period and think, God, Rob was what well, he wasn't even sixteen when he joined the band. He was two weeks off being sixteen. Wow. So I'm thinking at nineteen being told I'm brilliant and how who I'd become, well who'd he become being told that from sixteen? You know, it's it's just a we've all we all had our different journeys, but it just got it just gone too much for him. The day in, day out, the work, the the stress of it all and you know, me leading everybody, telling them what to do. It just got too much for him. So he was the first to go. What um, did you think he would go on to do at that point? Well, he, there's one thing I always remember about Rob. He's talented. Yeah. Very talented. You know, he, he when we started, you know, it was me and Rob were the singers. You know, we were the two who were always in the studio and, you know, he's great on a stage. There was never any doubt of that for me. But little did I think he'd ever go on to do. I don't think... If you asked Rob, though, he would say, I can't believe what's yeah. happened. I mean, it's it's for anybody. No no one can believe their success. I can't believe mine, you know, at this point. But but we've all had it, and, and taking it to pieces is an interesting thing. But if you asked Rob, you know, about his success, he'd say he, he couldn't Absolutely. believe it either. So if we'd have come along to you at this stage when take that, I mean, the pomp at that stage of your career and asked how much do you think the success is down to you as an individual and how much would you say is the best of the band what would your answer have been in the 90s in the 90s there's definitely 
you know, we were always aware that like Mark was the most popular. Was he? Because our this 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 um he's such a brilliant manager, our manager was, because he used to set out the fan mail so you could see who was the most popular. Great. <laughs> uh, that'd get you on your feet. And where was where were you on that list? I was about the middle. Everyone called Mark the cute one. And he was. He was yeah. a gorgeous I mean he still is, but but you know, <laughs> he's just just the perfect crush, isn't he, Mark? I was probably jealous a bit, definitely. But but I always thought it was interesting the way we could all see who was... <laughs> and was that done you know, deliberately, you think? I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. And what answer would you come to in terms of the percent that you're responsible for take that success at this point? Musically, I'd say most of it for the 90s. Um, but, you know, standing on a stage, I always felt really strong when I was with the band. Uh, our performance was definitely a piece of the success, which a lot of other bands didn't have. The live event was always a big thing for our band, still is. And so I, I, I could never feel like I was the biggest part of that. So Robbie's left. Yeah. You remain with the other guys. And then the decision's taken to break the hearts of millions of girls around the world and boys and go your separate ways. Yeah. Was there any fear at this point from you? No. No not fear. an ounce. Not an ounce of fear, no. I mean, we all sat and made the decision. Everyone was ready for just, like, just take this <laughs> burden away. It just felt too much. Um, In what way? So you describe it as a burden. That's an interesting... Yeah, it, it was not fun anymore. It was just crazy. I, I, I remember... Um, we were in like Singapore or somewhere on tour and we were going home the next day. And of course we'd all, all we'd all know what we were going home to. It just just, you know, lines of people outside your house yeah. and you couldn't do anything. I remember us phoning saying to Nigel, Can we go somewhere else? And he'd be like, You've been away for five months. I, was like, I don't want to go home. It was just too much. So the band ends. Yeah. But Gary Barlow's only just beginning at this point. <laughs> the self-belief is still sky high. Yeah. You're ready to tackle the world and you're ready to tackle America. Mm -hmm. How did that go? We just had Back For Good out. So it was our biggest record to date. Um, and we'd had a hit with it in America. We had a top five record with it. We ended up doing Letterman and all these things. And we came home and dissolved the band and I was ready to go back. And one of the guys that run the record label there he said, I, I don't care that the band split up. I want the guy who wrote that. And it was me. So he said, get him over here. We'll make a record with him. So I arrive in America. And um, and we have this very, very weird record-making process with Clive Davis, who's the head of Arista. Very big personality in America. Well-known uh, record executive signed Whitney Houston, Aretha Frank. I mean, just a massive... Exactly how you'd imagine right. a record executive to look. I knew who he was, but I didn't know anything about his history. But it was very clear to me very early on, he just didn't like my songs. I was taking things in and he was like, no, no, no. But how here's was that for you? Because well, you hadn't had that kind of management or conversation much, had you? Well, I, I'd say to him, well, listen, I'm going to release that next month in England. I, I'll, have a, I'll have a massive hit with it. So I don't know what the problem is. You know, it, yeah, he just didn't get it. And, and so kept suggesting these cover versions. And these, I'm just like, what, about, what do I want to do that for him? But 
I knew he was the key to getting into America. So I was trying to do two things. I was trying to write something which he liked. So all of a sudden, for the first time, I'm now trying to write to someone else's taste. So that was really odd. So, of course, it's not coming from the heart anymore. It's it's not coming from my place. It's coming to try and please somebody. And I just think as soon as you start doing that, you're on a road to nowhere. So what we ended up with is this hopscotch album of things he liked, things I liked. It was weird. It was a weird, weird record. But we'd worked on it for so long and we'd spent so much money recording it, so many trips, and it just had to come out. And I knew, I knew it was wrong and I was proved right. It, people just did not connect with it at all. Coupled with the fact that Robbie was having these big hits now as a solo artist... And it was just like the perfect story. It's the perfect press story that two guys from the same band are coming out. One's making great music. We're hearing from someone we've never even we've never even heard his voice before, this guy. You know, we've never heard him write songs before, and they're great songs. Versus this guy who is now a watered-down version of who he was before he went to America. It just played itself out as badly as it could. And so by the time we sort of re released two records that didn't do anything from that album, RCA dropped me. Wow. Will you go back and tell us about that incident with Clive Davis that you've recounted in your show? Because, you know, that, that opening night party to introduce you to America. Yes. Because what really resonated with me in your retelling of it was the wisdom of your dad from Connors Key Working mm -hmm. Men's Club that came back and reminded you to show you that it doesn't matter how big a stage you are common sense is common sense yeah yeah it was a a real moment that night i had a single that i didn't write it was a cover version but clive was happy this is the big launch great 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 and you're gonna be on my pre-grammy party tonight so now i'm like grammys new york clive davis this is it so i get on the concord they fly me over i land there and as I land, I go into Clive's office because we've got an afternoon rehearsal. And he says, it's going to be amazing. You're going to launch yourself tonight. We're going to play the new song. However, I've got a remix of it. The word remix straight away, because, you know, I'm, a, I'm in a pop band. I'm not in a dance band. I'm in like a pop band. I'm used to like radio music. So on comes this mix and literally the slices of my vocal in this track like like pieces have all been moved and the verses where the chorus used to be and it's all jumbled up and I'm sat there listening and I'm thinking this is not right but he's Clive Davis I'm just a guy from Frodsham what do I know I've got to do it I've, this is the doorway to America I've got to get on there tonight so we go to this rehearsal and I'm stood on the stage and 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 the mute the, the backing tracks on and I'm thinking where the hell is I just don't know where anything is and I know what I should have done I should have said I'm going home yeah. I'll see you next year at the pre-grammy party because this isn't right but I didn't I thought I'm going to I'm going to learn this thing and I'm going to go on and I'm going to kill the audience tonight, like I always do. Thinking I had two hours then to spare so I could learn this thing, they drag me into this room where it's like a reception for this pre-Grammy thing, and there's like 500 people, and the record label are literally wheeling me round, you know, like, 
the the boss of MTV America. Hey, nice to meet you. And I'm I'm loving this. The boss of MTV America. You know, <gasps> VH1. Oh, nice to meet you. You know, it's like literally a who's who. Aretha Franklin and her manager. Nice to meet you. I've realised two hours has gone by. I can't even remember what this bloody track starts like. Never mind finishes. So I literally like grab someone from the label. They've got a, a cassette of the of the backing track. I go into the dressing room and I start, I played it once, twice, round, and I just, I'm just thinking, there's no way out of this. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not joining the dots here. I'm the guy who rehearses for six weeks before one song's performed. It's just like, what am I doing here? And I was trying to think, how do I get out of this? Yeah. And at the point I'm thinking, I need to just go. I can hear him introducing me on the stage. And... I realised that I've got to go through this now. And I just thought the magic was going to come to me. I just thought I've had so much luck over the years. Something's going to help me get through the next three minutes. And of course, everything was wrong. I was singing in a bit where I shouldn't have been singing and the music was playing notes that it wasn't playing, that my voice was singing. It was just the worst, the worst three minutes, I think, of my whole life where you just want the ground to swallow you up. And also realising that this is this is the end. There's no coming back from this. There's, there's no second performance to launch yourself in America. This was it. This was what every artist wanted. And I got it. And this is where I am with it. And I remember wandering off the stage and thinking, that's the end. That is it. I'm, I'm going home. It was very telling because... The whole day I'd been in New York, I had minimum eight to 12 people around me, you know, you're great, you're going to be good tonight, you know, great, let's get to know each other, let's exchange numbers. When I walked off the stage, there was nobody. And I walked off the side of the stage, into the reception at the plaza, through the doors, and walked all the way down Fifth Avenue to my hotel, and there was nobody with me, and it was raining, and it was like, that's the end of that. And what was that words of advice that you remembered that your dad had given you at that moment? Well, my dad always wanted me to rehearse. That to, The rehearsal for him was his only way of... Because my dad was a working man, so you know he had, like, two jobs. And his only way of relating work to what I did, because it's not work, what I do, was the rehearsal. So when those words come back to me, you'd never do anything without rehearsal. That's why you need to rehearse. And I hadn't done any of it. So you're now in this period where the guy who was a, who's become your rival, Robbie, is having superstardom. Mm -hmm. You've had this awful episode in America. You've come back home. Like, I'm guessing at this point, if you've lost your record deal, you don't have a record deal, so you're not yep. performing, you're not working. You've lost everything that is kind of your North Star that you understand. Yeah. What was going on in your head at that point? Well, it, I'll take it year by year because it went went across about uh, seven years. This did, and so the first year I was blaming everybody else. The second year I was blaming myself, and the third year it was becoming real that that was the end. There was no way I could ever see myself recording or singing. I'd, I'd stopped singing completely, stopped playing on a piano, and. And it was driving me crazy. So what's your day look like at this point in your life? 
So it was an interesting one because as as my sort of career life went down the toilet, my personal life was on and up because we'd had two kids. Right. Life outside the studio was great. I'd do this thing where I hear this a lot where I'd say, all right, I'm going into the studio now, everybody. And dad would go off to do his day's work and I'd literally sit in there and I'd just be looking around the room thinking, what am I going to do? What could I do that would be useful to anything? And I'd sit in there and I'd look at the clock and I'd come out at four and go, anyway, that was a good day. And I'd, I'd act this day of being in the studio, pretending I was doing so. I was doing nothing. And some days just sort of watching the piano, thinking... I used to write big hits on that thing. Slowly going insane, really. Really? Yeah. Felt that yeah. bad? Oh, it, it, was, it was really dark. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Can I just talk about my Labrador Belle for a second? Oh, she's five years old. We love her so much. She is pretty much the most important person in the family, certainly more important than me. And that's why today's episode is sponsored by ASPCA Pets Health Insurance. Because I know that your pet is part of your family and you want the best for them, right? But at the same time, vet bills can really add up. And that's why you should check out pet insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years. They allow you to customise your plan, helping ensure your pet's plan is as unique as they are. And it's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash performance. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash performance. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. So you were in this beautiful house. You'd had all this great success, but you were totally empty at this point. Because I wanted to make music. Yeah. You know, I love music so much. And I wasn't even listening to music at that time. It's I really detached myself from music. So what did the piano represent for you then at that moment? You say well, you looked at it and thought... Well, the piano was the, with the enemy because the piano was... Remember, the piano is the vein to all things good. Yeah. Because when I sit at the piano, magic happens, you know because this song that I'm making today will go on a record and people will be singing it in stadiums and pianos are 
good place. Now it wasn't. I couldn't even play it properly. It was just like a different language at that point. But what surprises me about that is almost like the fragility of your confidence, you know, because the bit up until Take That, as you're describing, you built your confidence on really strong evidence. You've done your 10,000 hours, Mm -hmm. you've sat on the stages, you've watched the audience. Then you've had somebody that's bolstered your confidence in the world of commercial pop. But then you've got lots of evidence again that says you can do this stuff. And I'm I'm just really intrigued as to why that one incident, as horrific as it sounds, was able to dismantle all the evidence that you'd accumulated prior to this. It defeated me. My mind left me completely. And it's a funny thing, creativity. It's And it is delicate. It is very delicate. And it's why I said earlier about the managers. You've, if you're a manager of somebody or you're a, 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 a partner of somebody who's creative, it's just like you've got to be so careful around them because that line of feeling confident about what you're doing it's the only way you can create that i just don't believe someone who doubts themselves can create wholeheartedly it just doesn't work without that belief so what was the thing then that derailed you so much in that period was it that for the first time in your whole life you had failure as a musician was it the success of robbie or was it the fact that i mean i remember this period like the public reveling in it people enjoying the collapse of someone who had been such a huge star? The shaming was hard because it's a very public thing. It made going out very hard because people would say things. And soon as that happens, that's now three months of being at home without leaving. That's what it would be for me because it was just so excruciating to... You just wanted to crawl into a hole... And sort of mentally for me, the one thing that I, I I was being very clever with is that I was putting weight on. And the more weight I put on, the less people recognised me, which meant people weren't saying things. Um, so I went through this whole period then of, of um, being unhappily overweight, but kind of happy because it was doing something for me. Yeah. yeah. And I'd killed the pop star. So it was like I'd controlled something for the first time in ages. So was it a relationship with food thing or was it a, an issue with a, 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 like a body image thing? Or I think it all spurred from the shaming. Really? I think it all came from that. Um, I, 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 I wanted to go out, but I didn't want to go out yeah. because of the thing, you know, and, and also we were, you know, kid, the kids were going to school and things and I wanted to go to school and be part of the football practices and all these things. And as I was, I couldn't do that. And so this really answered a, a whole heap of questions for me. And I felt incredibly proud of myself at the time. I thought, I, this is fantastic. You know, I've, I'm, I've hidden but can we, I mean, that's such a powerful word, that shame. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's worth exploring it because I think that's what, like, it comes loaded with so much fear. Yeah. You know, like, even as you're saying it to me, I'm, I, it feels quite a foreboding thought. What was it that was causing you shame? We were in an era of media where there was no hold barred. You could do anything, say anything about anybody. Um, and I, I specifically remember a few headlines that were 
in, in newspapers mm. at the time. Relight my fryer, oh. back for pud, and there'd be pictures of me overweight, you know, coming out of a pub or something. But the big thing was the Robbie success because the Robbie success was like Channel 5 made a documentary on it. And, all that. and of course, I saw it all and watched it all when Rob went on the Brits and, you know, said I was the talent. All those things, I watched them all. That was the shame for me. It was just like, you're just like the, the butt of a joke. And Rob talked about it years later and, and, and he, he actually said that, it became something where it wasn't me. It was just a great way of, if he, if he was in a room and he wanted to make them all laugh, he'd make a joke about me. Mm, right. He said, I'd get a reaction. He said, it wasn't about you. It was just the fact that I was nervous and I wanted to get this room on my side and you were the thing I reached for. When we started working together again in 2005, which was when the band sort of reformed, we all had this hesitance because, you know, my, I'm just telling you my story Everyone had a story around that time, and and maybe some of them didn't don't sound as dramatic as mine did. But everyone went through something in those years off, and so we all came back with a real hesitancy and a sort of like you know we don't want to put our hands too close to this fire, you know. And and it was good that we did. We second guessed a lot of things. And did thought, you discuss it and have a did. bit of sort of group therapy? Very it? much so. We How useful was that? We discussed, in that first year, we talked more than we'd ever talked in the 90s as people, as brothers, as humans. So what um, was like the most telling observation that you heard from your bandmates during that time that that you still hold on to today? Well, a band is it's an interesting thing because I've just been with, with uh, Mark and Howard for two weeks and it's a very, um, it's an interesting because, you know, I've known those guys longer than I've known my wife. You know, we've got a very, very close bond together. I didn't really want to join a band in the 90s. I didn't really want to... I, I enjoyed it, but I was always looking forward to going solo. When I came back to the band in 2005, I really felt like I was in a band for the first time. I'd ever been... I'd never really been in the band the first time round. When I came back, I felt the strength of other people who were like me. You know, we've all been through something and yeah. only us know how it feels like. And it felt so strong. So if you fast forward a few months, we stood on a stage together and I'm looking down the line and I'm like, wow, this is just the best thing ever. But it just felt so healing and so safe. It felt like the first time I'd been in a safe place for a long time. See, the very term there that you describe about feeling safe, I find significant. I mean, we've had lots of leaders on this podcast mm -hmm. that have spoken about the importance of psychological safety to be, create a space where people can make mistakes, make cock-ups, admit errors without feeling mm -hmm. they're going to be castigated or made to look silly for it. Yeah. And I appreciate it wasn't just you, it was you, your bandmates as well. How did you go about creating an environment where you felt that word safe that you've, that you've used a few times? It wasn't forced, interestingly. It wasn't forced at all. Um, what, one of our big leaders, who was a silent leader in the 90s, but he became more of a leader of us when we came back as a group, was Jason. He was one of five brothers. So he was used to the family pyramid. And a band is a family pyramid. And you, as one leaves or one leaves the room, you all reshuffle position. It's very interesting. 
he was wise. He told us a few things and a few situations appeared and he he resolved them. And he was someone we, we all came to look up to a lot. Me, especially, has been the one who was always leading. I always felt that pressure of, I've got to look like I know what I'm doing, even though I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, it was shared all of a sudden. And also, for me, valuing the people around us then as well. We, we all said when we got back together, right, let's lose all the dickheads this time. Let's yeah. just have the good people back. And we did. We got all the good people back and, and they were valued as well. We brought them into our circle. It wasn't us and them. It was, it was us. Um, and that's where we really started going up. The gigs were getting bigger. It was no surprise that it was no surprise it was good what we were doing and it was and it was real you know those first sort of six years they were just sublime you know and up to Robbie coming back you know the, the perfect end to the story Rob comes home the best years of any of the years in the band were those years and would they have been the best years if you hadn't had to go through what you went through I, I guess the question is were you able to make peace with the the trauma of that really difficult time I think so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. You know, the rise back's been so worth it. It was worth those years of pain because the, 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 the person that comes out of the other end of it is, a, is, I think, a better person, a nicer person to be around, a nicer person to be in a band with, a nice person to be married with or be a father to. It's just been the making of me, those horrible, horrible years. And for people who are still in the difficult place at the moment and are maybe struggling with you know, their self-worth and their own confidence, the one thing we haven't told, the one part of the story we haven't touched on is how you went from taking the mirrors down in your house because your self-loathing was so great to being able to be back on stage with the band. Like, For someone listening to this, what was your first step to recovery that could perhaps be theirs? A lot of these roads we're talking about were never sort of parallel. They, kept, they seemed to happen at different times. It was almost like phases I was going through in those those years where, where I wasn't on the screen and on a stage. The non-stop eating thing was towards the end of that. I really think the thing that led me out of that was coming back into our band again because all of a sudden I couldn't do this anymore because I had a purpose again. And I also knew I'm not meant to be this guy. I'm better than this. I need to sort this out. Um, I was a big smoker at the time as well. I was like really like a lot of and I was and almost that was one of the hardest things to get over the cigarettes was so tricky. But I knew I had people I had to deliver for. I couldn't carry on with this. And so that that was a big part of me sort of really putting that to bed. Do you remember the first thing the that you did? Yeah, I went for a run. That's what? the first thing I did. With all the weight and while smoking? Yeah, like, I, was, I hadn't straight done out. exercise in such a long time. And I have to say, exercise is so much a part of my everyday. I'm a different songwriter when I exercise. I'm, I'm, I'm just a different person. I cannot advocate it enough mm. of how much good you get from it. But the first run I did, I was so out of shape. I was so hilariously big at the time that I shouldn't have been running to start with. But it felt 
brilliant to run. It felt brilliant to move, to feel air going across my face, for my knees to be lifted. It just felt so ridiculous and funny is that I just remember giggling to myself walking back thinking I've got a lot to do here but you know what it's all right because I'm on the I'm on the road now you know I've I've put the shoes on for the first time I've turned up and I think that once I'd done that I felt so good instantly a minute later I felt so good I thought well I've got to do this again tomorrow and I did I run every day for the next 2 years wow. and slowly this guy disappeared in my trail in the dust. And did you have therapy and stuff? I didn't, you know. Really? No, I didn't. I didn't. That's Music amazing. was the place I was turning to. And what about your wife and children at this time, Gary? Because you made the comment there about that that you felt you had that sense of purpose again, yeah. getting back on stage. What difference did they see in you as a, as a partner and as a parent? Oh, my wife was so happy when she, she saw me back on stage again because uh, she knows how happy I am to, to do that and be involved in music. She has this habit she does. So when, when she first came to watch a live show, she doesn't sit in the audience. She sits by the, the monitor man, the guy that does... So I have ear things in when I... Uh, the call in-ear monitors. And in those monitors, I get my own private mix. So I get the mix no one else hears, not the band. or I get my own mix where my voice is loud. I have the guitars panned one way, the drums in the middle, the keyboards over here. And she loves to sit listening to my mix. So she's the only one experiencing what I'm experiencing. And uh, yeah, she loved it. She's just so proud and, and still is. But but at that period, she she knew it's what I needed. Do you mind me asking what, what she did for you in the dark days for people who are listening to this and maybe they are a partner of someone who's struggling. What what was the thing she did to help? Yeah, she was amazing, you know, because she never grilled me. She never pressed me about anything. She probably knew I was doing nothing in the studio all day, but she never, she was never confrontational about no judgment. any of it. No, no, nothing at all. Even now though, she, you know, the, the this is the thing with music is that even when you're not doing it, it takes up your mind, is that I can be distant. You know, and that's the only point she'd ever go, hey, put that phone down now, come on, mm. get in here. You know, Why distant? Because music takes so much. It, it's not like coming home and putting a briefcase under the, the, the desk and not thinking about work till the next day. Music follows you around, you know. So as I'm having dinner, I'm thinking, oh, that's the end of that line. It, it's just so, <laughs> it's so annoying for everyone else. But creativity, it doesn't happen between 11 and 4 in the afternoon. It just happens when it wants to happen. So often for me, it can be in the middle of a holiday or, you know, and it can just happen at the worst times. Wow. And so what advice would you give to anybody that maybe have a partner or a friend that's struggling? Like, what really helped you to, to eventually come through it? I don't think there is a one thing... But the only thing I would say is that, and it's very simple, this, but it's just be nice to each other. Just try and be nice to each other. Because if you really do that, things are great. You know, of course, it's impossible to always have that. But like if you if you go into the day saying something nice or I just think it's a very simple thing. It's just like support who you're with. It's great. And, you know, you needed her in those difficult times for yeah. you and yeah. I know that she would have 
needed you after the yeah. very sad loss of your yeah. daughter Poppy. Do yeah. you mind talking about that? No, no, just for a moment because um, it's the most moving moment of the of the stage show yeah. that we came to watch, and you know you were. You really are able to make the audience feel how you were feeling at that time. Yeah. What was the process that you went through to be able to write that incredible song about her and about the whole period? Well, I'm always desperate to put things into music because, yeah. like I said earlier, my therapy is always music. And also, you know, for anyone who's been through what we went through and by the way, over the years I've realised it's so common. It really is. It's tragically more common than you think. Is that you have so little. You have so little. You don't have any memories. You don't have any photographs, very few photographs. You have so little, so you try and make as much out of what you've got as possible. And the music was such a big... Because I look back actually at that whole album and that's her in there, captured forever. And so for me, when I go out every night on a stage and say that, again, it's an extension of what she gave me yeah. in that brief time. That's what that period's been like for me. It's it's about adding to things that we're, we're ne we never got the chance to experience. And the more I can do that, the more I can either put it into music or talk about it or it gives more light to her. Yeah, That lyric, fly high and let me go, it's yeah. kind of, oh. I mean, it's it's moving, but it's painful at the same time, isn't yeah. it? That, that message to her, and, isn't I, it? and I didn't want it to be painful. I, wa I wanted to, I wanted it to feel because there's parts of it that isn't painful. There's the good things that that, that an experience like that mm. leaves and, is is as good as the bad. And you what know. are they? Definitely a togetherness because w yeah. one thing me and my wife were told when that happened because we did we did some grief therapy after that is that some crazy figure like ninety seven percent of couples split up after that, which you can understand, but it hasn't been like that for us. It's actually brought us closer. It's amazing what it does to you as a person. The adversity is a terrible thing to go through at the time, but you do find positives yeah. in it. What an honour to be able to sing her, I know. her song in front of those. I mean, that must I be up for you. What a moment. And it's also a moment when I do just a music show and, and it's just a song in the set. People yeah. are jumping up and down to that song. It's a massive reaction. And, and you play it late in the evening, you know, and it's just a look out and go, there's the light right there. It's so beautiful. really is. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I get a real sense of like a freedom now because... You know, you've been through all these things. You've learned from all these things. It's almost like it does create that suit of armour that, well, what can affect me? Because look at what's come my way. And yet here I am still standing, still performing, still a dad, a husband. Um, I suppose my question really, before we move on to the final quickfire questions is, what's it all for now? Like, you've had a great career. You've made your money. You've had your children. Wonderful. There's so much always going on with you. I always f see like seven or eight Gary Barlow projects happening. Hmm. Why are you always so busy? Oh, I love it though. Do I you? love it so much. I do. What's the not to love? It's great. Have you ever tried to take a... I remember I heard you once being interviewed and you said, I'm going to try and take a year out. Did that ever happen? I did, I did though. I did do a year out. COVID. <laughs> It was before COVID. It was before COVID. <laughs> that but even you were doing those sessions, weren't you? Where I saw I you doing the, so much, the online stuff where I you know. had other artists. Yeah, I love it so much. This is the good stuff now. You know, this is the stuff where 
you get to say no to things where you decide what you want to do. It's brilliant. Do you leave room for the things that you really want to do? Because I don't want to sound morbid, but you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. Like, do you make sure that you carve that out now? I think so. Yeah, it's taken me a... It's funny, when I meet other artists, whether, you know, you're on a concert or something, whenever you meet artists, the first thing everyone always says is, what about your balance between work and home? Is it good? Yeah, it's always one of the first things that comes up. And I've definitely got it wrong over the years, but I feel like I'm getting it right at last at this point. I'm definitely not as hard on myself as I used to be. I'm definitely not as serious as I used to mm. be. I think you've got to have a humour with what you're doing. I've definitely taken the stress out of my world and it's just left all the enjoyment, which is lovely. So how do you do it? I'm desperate to know that. <laughs> For myself, in a selfish point of view. So tell us like your criteria of how you make a decision to go, I'll do that, but I won't do that. What's Okay, I'll, I'll make it very simple here. I look at something and think... That's a pain in the ass. that. It's going to need this, this, this. this. You, you, when you look at, you're like, we want you to make a musical. Oh, that's four years. It works. Oh, no. This. Oh, 45 minutes. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> it's like, it's, it, if the level of pain in the arse is here, yeah. oh, someone else can do that. There you go. Yeah. I always say it has to fit into pain in the arse. three things. Profit passion or purpose i think if it fits into one of those three things and you can consider it but other than that yeah yeah but the purpose thing is the bit uh, definitely a big one for me what's yours well i think i've tried to always never do anything that isn't related to music so for instance like i, I won't be on a quiz show it's not related to music that is so whenever i've done tv things or whatever as long as it's rooted in music that i probably know what i'm talking about mm. This whole wine escapade's been hilarious for me because I love wine, by the way. But when we started talking about making my own wine, it was just like, you know, 100 bottles, a couple of my mates have a case each and yeah. I have a bit for Christmas and it's just all a bit of a laugh. I think we're approaching 800,000 bottles of wine we've sold now and it's just like this has got out of hand because it was never meant to be this. But there's no seriousness of like, yeah. well, we've got to make this quota, we've got to achieve this. It, it's not come from that. It's come from a passion of a hobby. You know, you can watch a concert and drink a nice glass of wine. It, it, it's somewhere in there is a relationship to what I do yeah. and what who I am and my hobbies. So authenticity. Authenticity. Needs to be at the centre yeah. of it. Yeah. Right, ready for some quick fire questions? Uh oh yeah. The three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you should be buying into. Well, I think the thing I talked about earlier about being nice to one another is, is kind, yeah. definitely a, a, a big thing and supportive yeah. as well. Um, and that's been a journey for you from the early days. Yeah. And yeah. also I have a team around me as well. So, you know, music team and yeah. you like being supportive and, and, and embracing, here we go, other people's ideas. Imagine that in the 90s. Um, I'm big on that. I love yeah. people coming up with ideas and seeing their work for them come to life is nearly as good as seeing my own ideas come to life. Um, but yeah, working as a team, yeah. big one. Second one. So have I given you oh, two? I think that was one. Was that one? Was it? Yeah, the team thing though, that's a okay. big one. Oh, yeah. Second, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a big one because the, the team bit yeah. has been massive for me in the last sort of 16 years. Let me do another one. Well, the fun. Yeah. Because the, the, the thing is with any of this, 
is that I try and always remind everybody around me is that we're in the entertainment industry. It's got to be fun, right? If, if it's starting to feel like we're pulling teeth, we should probably start what we're doing, you know. And you know what I love about those three? If we'd have gone to a 21-year-old Gary Barlow and said three non-negotiables, fun, yeah. teamwork and kindness. Probably wouldn't have existed. Yeah. Brilliant. What's your biggest weakness and your greatest strength? I think my greatest strength is experience. I think that um, I've definitely put my hours in over the years. And that's not being, I'm stating a fact here, I have. <laughs> I've mm. been on, spent thousands of hours on stages, millions of hours in studios. You know, I've definitely put, I think experience is a real strength. I think if you're interested in something, do it. And then when you've done it, do it again and keep doing it. Because at some point then it's going to just be like a muscle and work for you weakness let me have a think about this for a second i do still take some things too seriously and i have to remind myself of some of those things we just listed um but less so nowadays that's probably the you know taking things too seriously is always there on my shoulder somewhere where do you think that comes from i think it comes from the perfectionism um, which I've tried to lose over the years because, of course, we all know nothing's perfect. But it's hard in music. I always look at Elton John as a perfectionist. He is someone who is completely obsessed by music. I mean, you know, he's on a whole other level to me. You know, all he wants to talk is music and football. Um, but it's still, at the, the, you know, at his age where he should be, you know, just basically having a good time, he is still listening to as much music you know as i think i've got to the end of a good year and i've done 150 gigs i look and elton's done 250 i mean he just puts us all to shame yeah. the perfectionism is a definitely still a weakness for me your biggest mistake and what you learned from it well i think my biggest mistake comes from the clive davis area is not trusting my the small man in a voice because mm. that's who i was then and i should have trusted all those years I'd done what I'd done because it led to such a catastrophic turn of events that it possibly could have been, it could have gone a different way that day. So I didn't listen to my gut instincts and I've never, ever not done that again. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? If I could go back, you know, I'd put myself somewhere in that um, period of the early noughties because I'd love my kids to be young again. <laughs> We'd give anything for our kids to be little again. I felt like I could have got more out of those years than I did. I was sidetracked with what was going on in my life. Uh, it's the only regret I have in all of that time was I could, I could have been around more as a dad than I was. The final question, your last message really for people that have listened to this fascinating conversation you're i know you don't like giving advice or your own learnings <laughs> oh, no. you're too modest for that but this is your kind of what you'd love to leave ringing in people's ears your one golden rule for for a high performance life i think it's finding what really gets you excited just embrace it yeah. don't care what anyone thinks about you know it's just like if it lights your day up then just jump inside it and enjoy it i've found this with music over the years there's to to do the bit i love there's all this bullshit around it yeah. which you've got to do as well that's part and parcel i've come to terms with that over the years 
But there's so many things to take you away from music. Don't let it. Stay in there. Enjoy it. And get as much out of it as you can. Because I'm a better person at the end of the day when I've been in the middle of that bright light. I just, I just, you know, it's such a love of my music. So whatever you love, get in there. Love that. Gary, thank you so much oh, bless you. for that thank conversation. You. I, like, okay. I just think it's so easy when you're in the moment to think, I don't want all of this difficult stuff. I don't want the negativity. I don't want the challenge. But look what it's given you. Look at the freedom, the experience, the learning, the wisdom that you now carry to really enjoy every minute of every day. Like, yeah. Many people never get to that point, so I'm so pleased for you. you thank have. you. Thank you. I think I'm there. Yeah, it was a privilege. Damien. Jake. That is a life lived. Incredible, wasn't it? I think somebody that's started out learning his craft. I, I love the... I remember reading an American author called Daniel Coyle spoke about with your children look for that mouth open moment where your kids would look a gog or just completely immersed in something because he said use that as the opportunity to go and explore what is it that intrigues them and from the moment of him discovering that he loved music and was happy to lock himself in a bedroom for six months to learn how to play a chord or to record a song that to me was Really fascinating. I really hope that for people who are struggling, they realise that he was at a point where you probably couldn't get much lower and he got out of it. But I also think for people who feel like they're existing as the superstar of their own universe, take the warnings from Gary Barlow, life's a team sport. It took him a big knock, a huge knock, to realise the value that other people can bring to his life. Yeah, you know, when hubris meets your nemesis, it often doesn't have happy consequences. And I think for him, the hubristic nature of assuming that he was infallible and then to meet his nemesis of someone like Robbie Williams that went off and achieved his own incredible success, that, you know, he used that term. The next few years were catastrophic for him. And I think a little bit of humility goes a long way. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. Now, as always, huge thanks for listening to High Performance. If you want to watch it, you can do that as well. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. Just type in High Performance Podcast onto YouTube. Join the millions of people who watch our content on there as well. I sometimes think it's it's a bit more emotional when you can really see the whites of someone's eyes when they're talking about the kinds of things that Gary has just discussed with us. And there's only one thing I ask from you in return for this content, which we are determined will always be free for you. We just want you to hit the subscribe button. For you to subscribe to High Performance, it grows our channel. It means we can get bigger. And the bigger we get, the greater the names we can attract. And the greater the names we can attract, then the more influence they can have in your life. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being part of our High Performance family. We love this community. We love the feedback. We love the direction that things are moving in. And we can't wait to share more with you. See you soon.
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic, New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.